Hello and welcome to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by reader-supported LA Review of Books. I'm your host, Eric Newman, and I'm joined today by my co-host, Medea Ocher. Hi, Medea. Hi, Eric. So on today's show, we have a conversation with novelist Tom McCarthy about his latest novel, The Making of Incarnation. How would you describe this novel, Dea? To me, it read a lot like a Pynchon novel, but through Tom McCarthy lens. And so, you know, Tom McCarthy, if you read his work previously, the book I've read is Remainder. Mm-hmm. Um, he's really obsessed with movement and things being replayed over and over again and the sort of limits between reality and simulacra. And this book deals with a lot of those questions. He's a very intellectual writer. Absolutely. I could not agree more. I think that it's both a really interesting story, very much Pinchonian in the way that you're describing Medea, but also just I kept thinking as as we talk about in the conversation, how much the world that he's describing about technology feels so incredibly present to today, in which we're constantly being tracked, constantly being monitored, and oftentimes either being used by technology or using technology ourselves in order to make ourselves more efficient. And there's lots of very interesting thought about movement and physics and replication um, that I think made this novel just really fun to read and a great conversation to have. Let me ask you this, Eric. Do you have an Alexa? I do, and I'm not going to say their name out loud specifically (laughs) because they are always listening. (laughs) Something that my husband hates, but which I like. You know, I love being able to have Axel tell me what I need to shop for on any given day when I go to the grocery store. And I also really love when Axel tells me exactly how many tablespoons are in a quarter cup. There you go. So it has uses. It has uses. It does, but many more uses for me, I think, than I have uses for it. I think I'm the thing being used. That might be right. Well, maybe on that note, we should go to our conversation with Tom. All right, let's do it. Let's do it. We are delighted to be joined today by writer and novelist Tom McCarthy. McCarthy is the author of the contemporary classic, the novel Remainder, as well as the novels Sea and Satin Island, both of which were shortlisted for the Man Booker Prize. He's also the author of a collection of essays called Typewriters, Bombs, and Jellyfish, as well as the literary study Tintin and the Secret of Literature. He is also the general secretary of the semi-fictitious organization, the International Necronautical Society, the INS, which has exhibited art around the world. Tom McCarthy's latest book is called The Making of Incarnation. It's a novel which follows a hunt for a box that has gone missing from the archives of a time and motion pioneer named Lillian Gilbreth. Gilbreth's studies and movement helped birth the era of mass observation and big data, but did she also discover the quote unquote perfect movement, one that would change everything? Tom McCarthy, thank you so much for being here and for taking the time to talk to us. It's a pleasure. I know that in many ways, this novel carries forward a lot of themes that you've explored in previous novels, particularly with kind of like trying to locate the human in an increasingly inhuman, meaning artificial or kind of mediated world. But can you talk a little bit about the inspiration behind this novel? As you say, I've always been interested in the idea of movement, sequences of movement, and the idea that you can isolate a movement or an event and kind of 
take it apart and reconstruct it and repeat it again and again and again. This is the kind of one-line shtick that Remainder is built around. This guy just does this in a house until, until everybody's dead. I guess with this book, rather than being a kind of crazy project of a psychopath artist, Mulcahy, it kind of reveals itself as the kind of operating logic of late capitalism. Um, Very <laughs> and, much so, yeah. I didn't make this up. Lillian Gilbreth existed. The tradition of time and motion studies goes back at least 100 years beyond Gilbreth to Etienne-Jules Merret, and arguably, as Gilbreth herself argued, back to the Greeks and the Assyrians. So it has a long history. But I guess to answer your question, that I guess the kernel of this book was when an acquaintance of mine, an artist called Ruth McLennan, was giving a talk in London, and she just showed this picture of a, from the 1920s or 30s, of a woman running her hands along a sculpted, it looked like a roller coaster ride but without the roller coaster, just this tube that kind of crotcheted and streaked and doubled back on itself. And it was, she explained that it was a modeled motion of an assembly line worker. And I asked her afterwards where she'd found it. And she pointed me towards this archive in London that had lots of these. And then I discovered all the work of Lillian Gilbreth and the novel really took off from there, especially when I found out she'd gone to high school with Isadora Duncan and Gertrude Stein. That was the <laughs> eureka moment, this kind of triangulation between the world of capital and industry and the world of choreography and aesthetics and a kind of literary avant-garde that all comes out of California, in fact, out of Oakland, this big industrial center as it was then. For listeners who are unfamiliar with the work of Lillian Gilbreth, your book expounds on it, but would you mind giving them sort of a brief introduction about what time and motion studies is and what these almost, I mean, she took photographs, but she also made almost little panoramas, little sets of yeah. sort of tracking the motion in space. Could you sort of explain what she was doing? Well, she was a Hochdeutsch German upper middle class immigrant or first generation American. And she studied literature and psychology. And then she married this guy, Frank Gilbreth, who was a tailorist. He was all about increasing profit. You know, what's the most efficient way of a brick carrier to kind of put a brick and then the cement and should he hold it in his left hand or right hand? But what Lillian brought to that picture was a much more rich and nuanced kind of vision of what was involved here. She'd read Dante, she'd read Plato, she understood all about divine geometries and spheres and circles and arcs and, <laughs> you know, motion not just being something to make more profit, but having a whole aesthetic side. And so she brought this huge, basically humanist vision to bear on this world. And she, her big invention was to take stereoscope photographs, long exposure photographs of a worker's hand as she, for example, packed soap into boxes, the same repetitive motion on an assembly line again and again. And Gilbreth would attach a little light ring to the finger so that as the finger moved, of course, it, you know, like those Picasso torch drawings, it kind of made a track. And because she'd photographed it in stereoscope, she could then build it physically as a sculpture at the scale of one-to-one -one, and other workers could learn that motion and improve it. And I mean, this is kind of, if not the beginning, at least a vital kind of link in the whole evolution of time and motion studies to our present era of motion tracking and rationalization of, of everything, which of course is not entirely without its sinister side now, but 
I see Goldbrough as a kind of watershed moment where there's this huge kind of emancipatory possibilities that arise from it at the same time as advancing the long reach of control. So it kind of cuts both ways. One of the things that I found so incredibly present in the novel is that in many ways, you know, you're looking at light emotion studies and it spans everything from how can we capture, you know, the perfect light from the nearest nebula while it's illuminating bodies that are having sex in zero gravity, right? So that's one of the kind of film gags that's like the hilarious version of this light and motion tracking. But then there's also, as you were suggesting earlier, the kind of more sinister side. So how to make human beings more efficient, how to make factories and productions more efficient, right? So a kind of like the Ford model on steroids, right? To turn people literally into increasingly efficient machines. I mean, there is probably, I mean, by suggesting that it's the Ford model, it suggests a much longer history to this. But that's a kind of thing that as I was reading through it, I'm like, yes, this is what our device-saturated homes are kind of all leading us to. So not just in terms of kind of the Amazon warehouse model of making more efficient workers, but also the way in which my, and I cannot say her name, so I'll just say Axel Ah, is kind of constantly listening to me and not only kind of making my life more efficient, you know, my parents have fully automated their house in this way and love that kind of thing, but it's also shaping my behavior almost at every turn. I mean, this kind of gets into, that's a big part of the novel, is this tension between improving life, but also controlling or shaping life. So I wonder if you could just talk a little bit about both how you think about that in our present kind of tech-saturated life, but also how you wanted to explore those themes in the novel. Sure. I mean, I visited motion capture companies while I was researching this book, And what was fascinating from a kind of, I guess, political or moral, to use an old-fashioned word, point of view, was that these people, okay, typical week, and we get one of these weeks halfway through the book, you know, on the Monday, they're using their hardened software in the gate lab of a hospital to help map the neural networks, the muscular networks of a child with cerebral palsy as they walk up and down in order to help cure them and in order to help, you know, hundreds of thousands of other kids with cerebral palsy around the world. On Tuesday, they're working for a a left-leaning NGO reconstructing a killing in Guatemala to prove forensically through motion analysis that it was a state assassination. On Wednesday, they're working with a top-end football soccer team to help them pass movement sequences in football games and get that extra 0.1% that the winning goal is going to come from. On Thursday, they're working with the military helping their drone motion analytical software pass patterns on the ground in Afghanistan and decide from a particular sequence whether they should send down a strike. In other words, they're helping kill people more efficiently. You know, and on the, we got to Friday, yeah? On the Friday, they're making some dumbass sci-fi movie, right? <laughs> so, and the point is they're using the same hardened software to do this. It's not even immoral, it's amoral. This seems to plug into a, a very important kind of question that many writers have asked, which is about the kind of relationship of the artist to power. I mean, these people are artisans, basically, is the question I guess Brecht is asking in the life of Galileo or maybe Pynchon in Gravity's Rainbow with his character Perkler, who's this kind of rocket scientist who dreams of outer space joining all humanity together, but is meanwhile constructing V2 rockets that are killing people. And I mean, it has a long history, this question. And I think it's a fascinating one. I don't know what the answer is, but it's, I wanted to stage it, to restage it 
through this world, which again, the whole problematic of, is basically just a problematic of description, how to describe a body in space. I mean, this is what any Greek artist painting a discus thrower on an amphora is doing, <laughs> you know, <laughs> 2,000 years ago. It's, this is the oldest question in visual art and in literature, just the basic problem of description. Bodies, as Ovid says, bodies in a state of transformation. That's the subject of, of so much work. So this seemed to stage this in a very pressing way. It also gets to the kind of, when you talk about representation, right, as kind of the oldest aim of art, right, how to translate real life into something else. I mean, this is where, you know, motion capture studies, the term that we use now to describe perhaps the most nefarious use of it would be deep fakes. So where we can, in fact, the modeling is so great and the processing power of the computer is so high to be able to produce you know, both to capture, say, all of your facial features and tics, Tom McCarthy or me, and then reproduce that in a way that might actually not even be recognizably different from you to those who are most the people that know you the best. The question that I'm getting at here is, in some sense, what's being represented in that kind of deep fake version of Tom McCarthy is actually Tom McCarthy because it is a study and a data collection of all of his movements and responses and reactions. But it's also fundamentally not. So then you, we kind of get to this weird, almost like Benjaminian kind of what's the difference between the iteration and the original? You know, and how do you feel about that yourself as an artist? You know, somebody, we're talking about these big topics, but we're talking about them because they were represented in the novel. Sure. I mean, there are scenes that very, pretty much explicitly play out exactly this question. So, for example, there's a scene set in a wind tunnel where the Olympic two-man bobsleigh team is testing the aerodynamics of their bobsleigh and their riders in different positions. So it's kind of modeling. It's a blatant metaphor for the act of writing. You know, you model a situation in an artificial environment. I guess that would be one way, the kind of old-fashioned mimesis way of thinking about it. But then at one point, the trainer says, hang on, where are you getting the air from? Like, the air's not, is the air neutral? Once it's been round, isn't it already kind of imprinted? And then the technicians say, don't worry, it's neutral, it comes from outside. But then the narrative voice says, well, that's not neutral at all, because Holland, where the wind tunnel is, is itself a completely artificial environment. It's all been, it's a giant wind tunnel. It's been scooped out, hollowed, configured, constructed along certain engineering principles. And and I think at that point, we start shifting into a more kind of maybe understanding of the relation where everything is a kind of, it's about a set of machinic assemblages. I think it just becomes impossible and perhaps even reactionary to try and hold on to the idea of some essential natural truth, you know, pre-technological essence. I mean, we are always already mediated. We, <laughs> the whole thing is about, life is about certain assemblages. And I guess that the question is not to kind of recover some pure pre-mediation state, but is to kind of interrogate the kind of architecture and the processes of that mediation, and then to think about how we might want to reconfigure them. <laughs> Otherwise, this is the question of art and also perhaps of politics. So to answer your question, there is no real Tom McCarthy. It's all deep fake. <laughs> That's a good pull quote if we needed one. Just jumping off of that, I'd be curious, I think I can guess as to some of the other writers and thinkers that you are working from or thinking about as you write. 
But would you give us sort of an idea about who you found to be foundational for you as a writer? For this book? <laughs> for this book? Sure, for this book. I mean, I I found this book to be quite different from Remainder, but as I listen to you talk, I, I'm seeing more and more connections between the two. And so I suspect that there would be connections in terms of the writers that you think about in general, but for this book, yeah. I don't know, there's quite a lot. I mean, I, you know, I mentioned Deleuze and I, I hadn't actually read A Thousand Plateaus since like 1991 when I was 21 or something. And reading it post-internet, it's just an entirely different book. All this talk of swarms and flows and networks and connections and strata, just you'd think, oh my God, they're writing about the internet before it even existed or about a hyper-technologized world. But then, I mean, also I was, I was reading a lot of Proust. I mean, just, I got a Kindle and in the middle of the night, because, you know, Proust is too big to physically hold if it's a book, but on a Kindle, you can just read it round and round and round, especially if you suffer from insomnia. And it's just all about flow in time. It could have been written by Etienne Jules Meret or Gilbreth, almost. It's about fluid mechanical environments in which gestures are repeated and reenacted. And then the question is like, what is the moment within that? And can that moment be returned? And there's even bits where he, he obsesses about a particular gesture, like the way the Duchess of Gamant takes out an umbrella and he fixates on this movement and replays it again and again and again and tries to reconstruct it. So I guess I was really kind of thinking about that a lot. And again, in the wind tunnel scene, there is almost, I almost drop Proust, I almost plagiarize it or let it speak directly by the coach's obsession with like that moment of pure time that somehow should be captured by the visual technologies of the wind tunnel. So that was, that was a big thing. And I don't know, there's a whole bunch of stuff. I don't know. I mean, it all feeds in. Tristan and Isolde, obviously. I mean, the sci-fi movie, Incarnation, that's being made, this big blockbuster is basically Tristan and Isolde done as a kind of $50 million Star Wars type space opera. But it seemed very fitting. You know, it's all about traveling from one place to another on ships and taking drugs that make you all floaty and the relation to kind of borders and frontiers. And I don't know, there was a whole bunch of stuff. I was, I read lots of Lillian Gilbreth's own writing. Yeah. I mean, that's a fascinating collection to go from Deleuze to Proust to Tristan old. <laughs> but that, that makes sense. You are listening to the LARB Radio Hour, recorded remotely. We've been speaking with Tom McCarthy, author of The Making of Incarnation, We'll return to that conversation in just a moment, but first, we have this week's book recommendation. What I'll do now is I'll ask you, if you can, Natalie Diaz, to perhaps recommend a book that you think we all should read after we're not quite done with postcolonial love, but after our third or fourth read of postcolonial love. Yeah, I've been spending a lot of time in uh, What Noise Against the Cane, which is the first book by Desiree C. Bailey. It was one of the Yale Younger picks. I think it might have been Carl's last pick. I might be wrong, but I think this was his last book. It's an extremely beautiful book. It begins, you know, from the voice of uh, a woman in Haiti. So it's engaging chattel slavery and enslavement on the cusp of or right at the beginning of the Haitian revolution. And there's a really beautiful voice of the sea. Uh, so uh, Desiree is, I believe Desiree's from T- Tobago, but 
she brings in the voice of the sea as if the sea were speaking. It's a really beautiful kind of weaving of some of what's terrible that we've done to one another and also the way that this like kind of incredible, powerful life force of the ocean might happen. And the second part of the book shifts and then there's like poems of different form that are covering different topics, which she said was more her voice. And then it returns to this first section, which is uh, the voice of this female character and then the sea itself. So it was a really great experience, a very like sensual kind of crashing, noisy reading, extremely lyrical. Yeah, it's a beautiful book. Thank you, Natalie. And that's What Noise Against the Cane. You are listening to the LARB Radio Hour. Now back to our conversation with Tom McCarthy author of The Making of Incarnation. There's a variety of different treatments, I guess, of science fiction as a genre in the novel. And the novel itself is, I guess that's an interesting question. Would you think of it as science fiction? No, um, not, not at all. I mean, this, this is um, everything that happens in it happens on a daily basis in our actual world. I guess it's fiction about science in some ways. Yeah, but I guess, again, the reason science interests me here is simply because it's staging some situations and questions that I think of as essentially, basically, aesthetic ones that they're to do with representation and, and mm. to do with, and, and ontological ones, they're just to do with, like, how do we occupy space and time? <laughs> but, <laughs> well, then, uh, yeah. Then let me ask you, okay, so let me rewind so that's helpful. There's a kind of very cheeky treatment of science fiction as a genre, you know, in the the movie Incarnation, right? Mm -hmm. It gets to be a set piece where the novel can explore a number of problems or ideas about kind of motion tracking, CGI, um, but it's also the movie itself, as you've described it, it's a blockbuster, right? It's just, it's kind of like regular pap for that everybody can consume and then experience and forget about uh, almost immediately as soon as you've left the theater. So can you talk a little bit about how you think of science fiction as a genre, both as its kind of possibilities for storytelling or thinking through the human experience, but also then what you think might make a good science fiction, like what might not be in fact incarnation? Yeah, I, it's just not a genre I'm, I'm really invested in. I mean, I, I read Philip K. Dick quite late, and it's fine. I mean, I'd rather read Pynchon, but Philip K. Dick is, yeah, sure, it's all right. But the, I mean, the ideas are just very, um, seems to be like a transparent window onto the ideas. I, I think someone like Proust is actually, you know, in describing the, or, or think of Stern and Tristram Shandy, just like describing the ergonomics of someone taking out a, a handkerchief from their pocket and how that links to some kind of maneuver during a military campaign and to someone's repressed trauma about an injury they got. I mean, that in a way seems to be much more fundamentally revealing of, of some kind of deeper universal questions of of our place in the galaxies <laughs> than, <laughs> than, than most science fiction. I mean, I'm, I'm quite, I guess I'm quite traditional in, in that way. I mean, I, I don't know, it's, it's just not really a genre. I mean, sure, I've seen, I've seen these movies and, sure. you know, Gravity and 
Interstellar and yeah, they're all fun and they've got intelligent ideas and they have NASA consultants behind them. And But I just prefer actually to turn the sound off and just watch the spaceship disintegrating in slow motion mm. <laughs> and the balletic drift of the... It's the type of movie that's better without without the dialogue. Wait, so then actually, you have me thinking, does the gesture or movement itself hold like a particularly privileged position in your kind of writing or the way that you approach thinking about representation and writing about life? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, the, just absolutely. The gesture, I think there's a huge um, amount to unpack just from the notion of the gesture. I was just reading the transcribed lectures of the uh, the a late friend of mine, the architectural theorist Mark Cousins, who who did a whole year's worth of lectures on the idea of the gesture as this kind of category that should stand in its own as a kind of philosophical category. What what does it mean to strike a position in the city or in a painting or in a battlefield or you know <laughs> and how the same gesture can be transposed from one context to another you know pulling out a handkerchief pulling out a gun i think you know typographies of the taxonomies of the gesture are very kind of fascinating and i guess and again this is kind of what lots of motion capture stuff does i mean there might be exactly a similar move made in, in completely different contexts, one of which might be ultraviolent and the other which, of which might be a, a piece of ballet. And, and, and it's just very strange when you see these kind of transposed from one to another. It has all kinds of um, strange, uh, opens up kind of strange fields of thinking. You know, a lot of the thinking or like work that I've read in queer studies, you know, and especially some of the more academic stuff that I've worked on, deals with gesture as ephemera, right? So as trace, as the thing that helps you to make connections that otherwise might be. So queer ephemera, for example, like a queer gesture is a signature only able to be read by some that endures through history, even though specifically it's not meant to endure. But what you're suggesting about gesture is actually like much more durable. Like gesture is the thing that is replicated and in its like replication, it can cause those continuities across time. Is, your, is that accurate? Is your idea of the gesture as something that does in, endure in a different way, not merely as ephemera? I, I guess so. I mean, I haven't really thought it through systematically, but but yes, in a way. Or I mean, it's interesting, you know, Meret, who is, he's called the, the, the father of chronophotography. I mean, he, he was the first person to really put, put little lights on human figures in the 1880s and, um, and, and have slow exposure before Gilbert, but not in stereoscope. But the, some of the first actions that he recorded were writing, <laughs> signing with a pen, and twiddling and stabbing with a bayonet. And I think it's very interesting that, you know, it's writing and killing. I mean, they're both, <laughs> you know, they're both about this, this kind of twirling movement of a, of a sharp Im- implement, and, and, and they're kind of the same. I mean, the idea of scrawling a pattern in space on a surface so, so for Derrida, you know, the, the, and for, after Freud, the, the archive is always a record of violence. It's a pattern made on a skin, whether that's a parchment of paper or, or the body of a victim. It's about some kind of incision that persists no matter how many times it's erased. It's always, there's always a trace. So maybe, yeah, the gesture belongs to that type of, um, you know, world or something. 
I mean, to, to hear you talk about these, these things and, and Proust, but there's a moment in this book and there's moments, I think, in your other books where it's a sort of formative moment where at least either the main character or one of the main characters seems to become aware of movement and then begin to dedicate themselves to studying it. And I wonder if, and you might not have this, but I wonder if you've, you have this. Do you feel like there's a, a formative moment? It might, it might even be a, a moment of encountering a representation of a gesture, a representation of movement, does not necessarily the movement itself, but that felt to you so compelling that you sort of dove into it. In, in my life. Or was it sort of built know. over time? In your, yeah, either in your life or sort of in your intellectual life, I think either, either one. I mean, I'm thinking in this book, there's a moment where a child who eventually is one of the main characters encounters this painting of a man throwing a, a pebble at a, at a bird. And so much seems to come from that formative encounter with a gesture. And something like Remainder, it's a trauma is then replayed over and over again. So there's something that compels these characters to then kind of dedicate themselves to studying what this is. I wonder if you have that just as, as either a person or as an intellectual mind. Well, sure. I mean, so, so in the book, one of the main characters, Mar- Marky Foken, he, as a child, he goes to a mirror show and he sees this amazing mirror picture. I mean, I encourage your listeners to check it out on Google Images straight away. It's, it's called Person Throwing a Stone at a Bird. And it's this, this figure with a giant swollen foot, as in Oedipus, right? I mean, um, throwing, doing, doing this violent act. But it's all geometrical. It's all about arcs and trajectories and everything's plotted in space. And the bird that's about to be hit has already got blood on, or the rocks have blood on them. And it's a fleck of blood in the eye of the throwing figure. It's like the events already happened. And, and in my book, I have the kid reenact that in the gallery because he, he has a little rolled up love ball in his hand. And then the rest, I mean, that sets the whole book in a way. The whole of the rest of his life is, is a replay of, you know, helping uh, objects fly through space or body parts fly through space in a, in a particular way. I mean, often with violent results, as we see in the case of drone strikes. And uh, you know, I mean, Oedipus was is a central template for this, but the, the sense that what will have happened has already been determined and that anything you do to avoid it is just actually leading you even more into the grooves of that particular geometry of, of fate. You're always going to follow such and such a trajectory. It really struck me when you look at forensic software showing, you know, a murder scene. The geometry that that the software draws it's always so perfect. It seems to extend like, like this perfectly woven fabric from the muzzle of the gun. You kind of think, how could it ever have been any different? This space was always configured just for this event. And if the person there died, it's just because they stepped into a particular um, trajectory or, or, or point within the geometry. So we are in these geometries. We're, we are held by you know, you mentioned Alexa. Virtually nowadays, our every movement is tracked if we've got an iPhone on us you know, <laughs> through space. And, and there are algorithms not just analyzing, but also determining what, how we move through space. So it's almost like the gods have been replaced by technology. But I guess in my own life, I, I don't know. I was, I think that a sport, you know, sport, it really interests me and not so much sport itself, but like the mediation of sport. And, um, and I remember as, as a child, when they started introducing screens inside the stadium at, at international cricket matches, 
And in, it's a bit like baseball. So there's the bowler bowls, the batsman does something or nothing. And then there's about a 40 second or 30 second break while the ball comes back and the sequence starts again. And they would start inside the stadiums on the big screen, replaying that ball, that two second burst of action or half second burst of action in slow motion. And the batsman would often watch the screen in slow motion and reenact with their own body what the replay of themselves, the slow-mo replay of themselves was doing, right? Um, you know, in order to say, oh, I should have, you know, I could have had my elbow a bit more up. And But I, I, I think that's an alibi. I think it's really about this, again, this kind of Proustian um, need just to re-inhabit this moment, that the moment itself becomes something that's not fixed in time. It's, it's this repeatable kind of pulsing and very ongoing thing that that has already happened, will happen, and is eternally happening, that you can just, through gesture, re-inhabit again and again and again. And of course, the logic of kids in every playground reenacting Pelé's goal from the World Cup. <laughs> you be the goalkeeper, I'll be Pelé, let's do it again, let's do it again, let's do it again. Ever since I was a child, I found that logic very, very compelling, even without kind of intellectualizing it. Does that, does that make sense? It does. It, it does. It very much makes sense. Yeah. Um, I, I wonder with, well, you, you mentioned that some, some of the violence that occurs in this book from, from the study of motion. And I wonder if you could touch a little bit about on your, your work at INS and you're thinking about death because you, you mentioned it. I mean, and I think, you know, one of the sort of biggest questions that must come up when we talk about movement is the cessation of movement. Um, the cessation of moment, the inevitable end, right? If everything is determined, the other thing that is also determined is that there will be a moment at which you no longer move. Can you talk a little bit about your how you think about death in, in terms of your work with uh, INS, but perhaps also in, in your thinking about movement? Yeah, that's that's a really good question. I mean, you're asking all these really good questions and I don't have the answers, but they're very good questions. <laughs> and And I'm happy to kind of, you know, think them along with you. I, I guess, I mean, in so, so in, in the novel, I, I have this contrast between Lillian Gilbreth and her husband, Frank, and Frank's all about filming everything and everything must always be in motion because we're motion studiers. So of course we want to make films and that's the modern way. And Lillian almost reverse engineers that, that she has this idea that motion will reveal its secrets only when its dark interior is colonized by stasis. You know, the truth of motion is, is stasis, that at the heart of... So the whole point of breaking everything down is to achieve some kind of... of breaking every movement down to its constituent parts is to achieve this, to retrieve this, this kind of stasis at the core of it. I remember seeing this, that wonderful documentary about Muhammad Ali, about the rumble in the jungle, When We Were Kings. And there's a, there's a bit in that where, where Ali is, is explaining, he says, I mean, this is like in 1970-something, he says, you know, they have these cameras, then a camera breaks a second down into 24 parts. But me, I'm like that camera. For me, each of those parts is like a second. I have so much space inside. While the other boxer is throwing a punch, um, which might take one second, I've got 24 times that amount of time to read his punch, move out of the way, think what, you know, do the counter punch. It's an incredibly beautiful kind of speech. And, and it seems to kind of use the same logic about kind of expanded 
time or, or, or an expanded space within 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 time that would be to do with yeah I guess to do with stasis how that relates to death though I don't really know I mean you're right I suppose that would be a good definition of death the point at which something no longer moves yeah total there's a there's a scientist in this book whose work is all about states of of equilibrium and I guess he ends up hanged from a from a rafter um which is a kind of ghoulishly ghoulish irony you know he's in perfect equilibrium which is which which is death but then also i mean the the two lovers the tristan and his older figures from the sci-fi movie tilde and sveten that their their kind of self-immolation is a very active thing they're kind of throwing themselves into like Empedocles casting himself into the volcano or whatever, they're kind of throwing themselves into, into outer space in this act of transgressive love, which is a quite affirmative uh, and, and, and motion-filled kind of version of, of death. It's a really good question. I wish I, wish I, could, <laughs> I, wish I could answer it. <laughs> well... Thank you for thank you for thinking about it. I um, I think it's um, one of the many questions that this book raises, and I, maybe uh, maybe it's nice to end on the note of the of the two lovers and their relation to death. Tom McCarthy, thank you so much for joining us. A pleasure. Thank you. We've been speaking with Tom McCarthy, author of The Making of Incarnation. listening to the LARB Radio Hour. Subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. If you like the show, please rate us on Apple Podcasts to help us get the word out, and we'd love to hear from you. The producers of the LARB Radio Hour are Medea Ocher, Kate Wolf, and Eric Newman. Our executive producer is Alan Minsky. Our sound engineer is William Broaden. Editorial production by Jake Levins. Our intro music was written and performed by Imogene Teasley-Vladen. Vladen.